we were together and he says, do you think that you'll be more successful than I am? And I said, I hope so. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. And I'm Elizabeth Thompson. Our guest for this episode is the two-time Emmy-nominated film director Erin Lee Carr, whose work features several acclaimed true crime titles for HBO, including Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, and At the Heart of Gold, Inside the USA Gymnastics Scandal. And this year, Undercurrent, The Disappearance of Kim Ball. For Netflix, Erin directed Britney vs. Spears about Britney Spears' quest for freedom from her conservatorship controlled by her father. A new miniseries called The Girl from Plainville, starring Elle Fanning, debuts on Hulu March 29th. It's produced by Carr and is based on her 2019 documentary for HBO, I Love You Now Die, The Commonwealth vs. Michelle Carter. Carr is the daughter of the esteemed New York Times media columnist David Carr, who died suddenly in 2015 at the age of 58 when Aaron was just 26. David Carr had experienced what his daughter describes in our interview as, quote, the rise and the fall and the rise, grappling in his 20s with a crack cocaine addiction amidst the beginnings of what would become a meteoric journalism career. The premature births of Aaron and her twin sister helped him to get and stay sober, all of which is chronicled in his best-selling 2008 memoir, The Night of the Gun. In Aaron's own memoir about her father, 2019's All That You Leave Behind, she writes about the special bond she had with him over their shared career ambitions, and, as Aaron would realize in her later 20s, their shared addiction to substances. Six years sober and engaged to a Washington Post media columnist, a similarity she thinks her father would have a field day with, Erin talks about the constant encouragement her dad bestowed on her, his toughness and tenderness, and shares the email he sent her after she was once fired that should probably be anthologized in parenting manuals. All That You Leave Behind was one of the inspirations for starting this podcast, and so we're thrilled to get to speak with a fellow Sir's Girl, which is Aaron's preferred term for Daddy's Girl. This is absolutely an episode for Sir's Girls, and we hope you enjoy it. Here's Aaron Lee Carr. Can you tell us the story of your life for our listeners who don't know David Carr? It's quite a story. You didn't grow up with... Your mom and your dad. Your dad raised you, but he had a bit of a crack problem before he got clean. As one will. Um, (laughs) So my dad, born in Minneapolis, one uh, of seven children and of eight children. Oh, my God. Um, And, you know, he was the party boy. He was the, the person that was really high during high school. It took him seven years to graduate college. And then he indexed into cocaine in his 20s and early 30s. And then met my mother, who is a, you know, in the book, he describes her as a respectful, but, you know, well-known drug dealer in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Um, They get together. Me and my sister are born uh, purely an accident. 
not intended. And there's this very serious sort of bit of consequences as they're incredibly addicted people, but they're also having children and she had other children. And so that's when neglect starts to sort of factor into the story. My sister and I were born two and a half months premature. Um, Mm -hmm. She was uh, two pounds. I was two and a half pounds. And it was just this incredibly weird, chaotic thing to be born into. And, you know, later there would be this big moment to which he describes in the book a lot more poetically than I'm about to, but where he was doing drugs and taking care of his children. And he left us outside of a drug house. And it was this change agent moment of, am I going to kill my children while I'm getting high? And so I'm like this, you know, with my sister, this little baby in a snowsuit. And not just then, but he decides to get sober and he ends up raising my twin and I, and he has this miraculous growth from somebody who is uh, addicted to crack to somebody that got freelance pieces, became a writer, became the editor of the Washington City paper, moved to New York to try his luck, ended up getting hired by the New York Times, and would then grow to have like a 400,000 people following on Twitter and people reading his Monday column all the time. And people loved him specifically because he didn't bullshit. He uh, had this very incredible way of writing, but he held people accountable and he became a must sort of read in the industry. And he had this amazing story about the sort of the rise and the fall and the rise. And I was a child that was involved in that. And so it was this sort of like this almost like this fairy tale. But then he started drinking again when I was in high school. And as we know, like addiction will come for you. And, And so he was in danger of ruining our fairy tale ending. And I would later discover that I too, based on genetics and my own personality, had alcoholism. And it just was like, it was going to work out sort of famously. And then it didn't. And that's the way life goes. And so I think that it's wild. It really is. I mean, I love the way that it was such a uh, media friendly family, if you will, like the scenes you describe as you're growing up, just like reaching for the paper, which paper would Aaron get before Megan or, or just sitting around the table talking about current events. That's fairly unusual. And I don't know, I think exciting to have that bond. Did your twin sister have that sort of same relationship or was it different? Megan and my father had this really beautiful, loving relationship that was based on truly a father and a daughter and she would go in and work in the mental health field and my dad cherished her and was you know I was this challenging sort of like reverse image of him that he loved but he also despised and here was this altruistic gentle beautiful person that just loved him for who he was and so yes they had a great (laughs) relationship (laughs) I bought your book, I'll Let You Leave Behind, and you do this beautiful job of interweaving email messages with your dad and G-chats and text messages. I love how a lot of these exchanges are initiated by what you call flares, where you send out some um, people listening to the sons and daughters will relate to the, the concept of the flare email at any age to a parent, which is help me. What do I do? How do I be in the world? And your dad would write back these incredibly kind and motivating 
and sometimes tough love and harsh and frank responses to you. You know, I love what he said to you about a boyfriend at one point. He said, like, all you lost in this breakup is 180 pounds. He was the best 180 pounds you ever lost. The best 180 pounds you ever lost. And then he said, life is long. Like, just these incredible kind of pick-me-up emails to you. I tried a couple times to read it and I had to put it down because it reminded me so much of my dad and was able to finally read it in preparation for our interview. And I'm so glad that I did because in stealing myself, I ended up really having a lot of fondness for him. And of course, in relation to what you and the similar stories that we have with our late journalist fathers, very long winded way of saying I can barely look at the emails and I have troves of, you know, can you help me figure out punctuation for this concert review that I'm going to write for the Village Voice or this 150 word nightclub write up that I was taking way too seriously. Um, I have so many and I and I can't bring myself to look at them. How long did it take you to be able to jump into these archives of messages, whether, you know, it was the Twitter feed or the email, were you able to go in right away or did you need some space there? In terms of the sort of the emails, my dad died incredibly unexpectedly at 58 and all I was left was these emails. And so I think I was at this, I was 27 years old and I was in um, a huge transitionary moment. I was deciding if I was going to become sober or not. And I just needed to hear his voice. And um, it was an honor to write the book. I would say that I like was not financially well off when I had this, you know, got the sort of the book deal. And specifically, they'd offered me less. And I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not going into the pain of this. I have to get to this number. I needed any money, right? But I was not going to sort of utilize my story for something that would just be sort of more painful. Mm-hmm. And I try to talk, you know, I, I, in, in podcasts like this, I, I, I try to be as honest as possible that it was uh, sort of motivated by, um, I felt fearful about the future. Somebody was offering me an opportunity to write about somebody I really, really loved. But I would say that it was bad for morale. Yeah. Just spent time in the, you know, my dead father archives for for many years. But I began to think of it as sort of a creative challenge and how many words can I get done and reminding myself that people very rarely get to share their story in this way. So acting with gratitude. But I would say that I upped therapy. I upped dog time. I was going to a lot of recovery meetings at the time. And, you know, I just, I tried to be like, okay, like this is hard, but like this is worth it. I'm curious about writing the book. You know, you're a filmmaker. Was there ever a desire? Is there a desire to make a film about him too? Or was there a decision between writing versus a documentary on him? I've been asked before to make a documentary about him. I think that seeing his face that much would be too painful. I'm at a completely different um, stage of my grief now. I was inconsolable for about a year straight, had intrusive, repetitive thoughts, had um, PTSD. I was the last person to see him alive. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was feeling at the time. And I feel, you know, it's going to be seven years next February. I just, I feel grateful. I feel happy. I feel close to him. Um, And it's just something that I really needed to hear that grief morphs from this, this thing that takes over your brain and takes it hostage. If you had a good relationship, like I was able to have, 
they will sort of process and work through it um, with great therapy, but I don't feel the same at all. I feel one one hundredth of the sadness that I um, that I felt back then. Yeah, that's so true. That I mean, I think grief really does shift, and you have a beautiful image at, at the end of all that you leave behind about a, you know a glacier moving. It's very slow and it's very mm-hmm. subtle, but. I totally relate to that. Like I just, for whatever reason, I have a reverse thing where I can't read his writing or I have a hard time. And the newspaper with my father, the newspaper in Phoenix still runs his columns every Monday. He's been dead for four years. Love it. And my sister will send them to me sometimes. But I have a hard time with his voice written. But I found an interview with him on public radio in Phoenix from like 15 years ago and I can listen to that it's emotional Mm. but it's not it's the strangest thing but I love what you said about it shifting because I wouldn't have been able to do any of it at first and and those terms like you know grief obviously shifts like did your perception of him change at all did you get to know different sides of him at all as you kind of dove into these emails or into this these tweets even, or, or, you know, things that he shared that maybe you hadn't noticed in life. Or when, when you were reading his book and, and writing, like when you were learning about him. Um, I recommend anyone to read The Night of the Gun, his book. It is horrifying. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, like the specifically the part with prostitutes. Um, Sure. You know? Um, and so I reread the book every year to sort of honor him and keep his thoughts in my brain. I either listen to the audiobook or I, I have his book really close to me. I bring it on shoots sometimes. It's this sort of this sort of talisman. Uh, you know, did I learn more about him? Absolutely. He would say things to me that was uh, about a certain situation. But it also would be sort of a life lesson. And yeah. so, um, you know, whenever I talk to people and I'm able to talk to students about filmmaking and writing and things like that, I'm just like, just record your parents, just record your best friend, just, you know, have these sort of digital artifacts of these conversations. Don't just have iPhone pictures, have video. Um, I'm in the process of hopefully digitizing some of the family videos and he's so handsome and he's so cute and such a funny dad and like just being sort of playful. And I know the professional David Carr, the journalist, I know him as my mentor. And then I'm getting in sort of touch with this sort of the goofy, um, the goofy news. And, you know, I recently got engaged to like the complete exact person for me, the love of my life. And it was like, ah, I want to call my dad. Like just, you know, and, it's 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 particularly uh, you know weird because my boyfriend Jeremy Barr he's a media reporter. Mm. Um, it's very Freudian. It's gross. My dad was a media reporter, <laughs> um, and so I'm sure he would tease me shamelessly about it. Thank God they look nothing alike. Um, but it's just like you know I think that I mean he would adore Jeremy and like all that yeah. you know he does and. They met before, and Jeremy was actually there the night that my father died. It was a talk. And so it turns out we had been in the same room many times. I was with a, a different boyfriend who's incredibly lovely. But yeah, it's just there, there are these hugely painful moments. But because I wrote the book and have all this, I kind of have his logic inside my brain. And Busy, I would really welcome you to go back. And like, because it, it basically, there's the public radio side of your dad. And then there's these like 
the actual voice to you mm-hmm. and doing all this like sort of reporting on it like when something comes up with a source or I don't want to go to a meeting or you know I'm having a difficult difficult thing I literally play the tape and I'm like what would my dad say about this I don't know if it's correct or not only Ugh. he could say but it's it's like this incredible thing to have access to because like it's almost like then his voice continues in my life because I have this huge plethora of information mm-hmm. um, to sort of guide me from. I have two siblings too, not not sisters and not a twin, but I found it so difficult when our dad died suddenly of a heart attack to frankly get along with my with my brothers. Like w- there was just immediately that tension of like, you think you know everything, he would have done it this way, <laughs> you know? It's tough. Talk about siblings, because you also have another sister who is with your dad's wife, Jill, right? Yeah. And Jill was, you know, primarily my mother. They your were mom. married for like 20 years. Um, and uh, Madeline and I worked together, which is incredible. Oh, wow. Um, it, uh, you know, I was such a dickhead when she was growing up. I was obsessed with like video games and Buffy. And I never, <laughs> I never paid her much mind. And, and then as she sort of grew into adulthood, I could hear my father look after her, mm. look after her. And she's an incredibly independent person. I won't say much more about her because she yeah. wouldn't want me to, but, yeah. um, you know, I think that it's been incredible to see her work on these projects she just was in a um an associate producer on undercurrent and and she's going to be do associate producing on my next hbo series and like the girl can do it like she does Yay. it differently than me but she does it and so i think that in terms of getting along i honestly think if i was being if i was being clear about it i think i'm alpha and yeah. i think that my sisters put up with a lot and i genuinely love to be babied i'm very dominant in my work but I want to be babied and I want to hold hands and like, you know, and, and it just, I want people to take care of me. And at a certain point, my, you know, my sister was like, it's not our jobs to take care of you um, in the kindest way possible. And so I think that it was like painful in the years after with my stepmom and us figuring it out. But I just, I feel so grateful we've gotten to an amazing place. And that's like, books have this ending and Jill and I have been able to really sort of come together and understand. And, you know, if there's somebody that knows what my dad would think about something, it would be Jill. If there's somebody that is the mother to my baby sister, it's Jill. And so recognizing how hard it is to be a step parent and then, you know, having gratitude that she's, that she's here and she's with us and we're our own weird family. (laughs) Yeah. Erin, I also have a sister named Madeline, Maddie, but she's four years older than me. And, you know, up until his dying day, he called me, quote, the little one. And he I remember him kind of once saying to someone like the big one, I'm scared of her, the little one, not so much. And it always felt like such an insult, but we just had a different understanding of each other. And it's actually created two kind of very different experiences of grief that both go back to the same place, which is just missing him and loving him, you know? So I I really liked how you handled that. And in the book, you know, your sisters are in it, but their experiences are their own and you don't Mm -hmm. try to tell their experiences. You stick, you stick to yourself and what you know. And I think that, you know, to your point, Erin, like there's almost like when holidays happen after somebody has died, 
the mm-hmm. last place that you want to be is with your family without <laughs> that person. Yes. And so it ends up like I would find myself trying to do anything to get out of that stuff. Oh, I'm working, da da da. Oh, I'm going to be with uh, my boyfriend's family because it was just too painful. And so then like unconsciously, it comes from a place of like, I don't want to be in that family. There's something gone. There's something mm-hmm. missing. There's tension. And so what I had to realize is like, it's just going to be a new type of fun. And if you put activities in it and you're like, okay, we're going to do this. And we're not just going to sit around and watch 90 Day Fiance and like cry (laughs) into our pillows, but like, we're going to actively do something. I mean, that's like, I think, you know, people that are on this podcast, like they've lost somebody. Um, And so the best thing that we did was start putting time into, we're doing stuff, we're going to do stuff together. And we're going to form our new relationships in this post, you know, the patriarch is missing sort of moment. What does that look like for you guys as far as making new traditions? In the book, you talk about a first Thanksgiving without him. That's you just sort of power through in Boston. That sucked. Everyone was like really sick and I had to share a bed and like the apartment was discussed. I don't know. It was like, no, I should have gone and had dumplings with my boyfriend. F plus experience. F plus. I think that it's like, you know, going and exploring a city. Um, Everyone in my family got dogs, Mm -hmm. except for my twin sister. Like dogs have been this amazing way to focus on like something else. And it's like, ooh, you know, we go for walks with the dog or we go to the movies or, you know, we're like, you know, we're getting our favorite takeout and we're going to do this and we're going to talk about you know, we're going to watch Erin's new work and she's going to watch you while you're watching it. And I think dogs and then exploring and doing new food things has been really, really important going on a trip together. And I guess we still sit around and like watch TV, but it's not the whole time. And we're other people like Megan's husband, Ed is in the mix. My prince is in the mix, um, <laughs> you know, adding sort of new people to the equation. So we're on better behavior, I would say. Well, okay. So the the advice that your dad gives you, like you make your way to New York, you get an internship at Vice. Was that your first big media job? There's so many great emails back and forth where he's kind of advising you on how to just be in media in general. Can you talk about your first real big success. So I'll, I'll bring you back to Vice. It was either 2012 or 2013. I had made a short film called Click Print Gun, which is about Cody Wilson, who had 3D printed weapons and firearms. And mm-hmm. one of the huge moments, kind of like how Bitcoin is now, was this ability to manufacture firearms and the government going crazy, like, is this going to be the thing now? And so I was able to make that. And I remember we were sort of like coming up with titles, me and my dad, and he was the one that came up with the title, Click Print Gun. And it ended up getting, I think like three or four million hits in the first week. And Mm -hmm. I suddenly had this sort of Midas touch, not for being related to someone as I had been known, but for somebody with ideas and the execution and ability to generate content while I was getting paid like literal uh, scraps. And right. so it was, I was a good return on investment. And um, it was so exciting to sort of like, you know, my dad was this huge bragger about his children and he was incredibly psyched. And 
he had this thing that he would always say. He said, who knew? We knew when something good would happen. Because he was like, I always knew it. Um, and that's like, you know, basically instilling confidence in your children is one of the biggest gifts outside of material means you can do. Uh, you're special. You're smart. Mm -hmm. um, also, like, shush, you have to listen. But um, so when this happened, you know, it set up the trajectory where I was pretty sure that I was good at what I did. But I always was relying on him. And I always wondered if it was like because I was related to him or what was going on. I would end up, I've made, I think, eight projects, uh, mm -hmm. eight films for HBO and Netflix in nine years. Wow. And uh, most of them obviously were made after my father died. And so I say this like in a, a really nice way, but I don't think I could be who I was today if my father was still here. I had to separate. I would mm -hmm. have never agreed to that bargain but it's almost like I couldn't listen to myself because I was always listening to him. And even though my professional life was good when he was alive, he did not see me grow into somebody that, you know, I currently have a deal with HBO and I make things about women that I really care about that get seen by people. And it just was like, there is kind of hope on the other side of loss yeah. in that I think specifically as women, no matter what our age, like coming into our own awareness outside of our parents, because I, I have this new thing of like, what if it's like, doesn't matter what your parents think. <laughs> and if I just I place so much emphasis on like pleasing this dude mm -hmm. that's no longer here. And like, what if I was trying to make myself proud mm -hmm. and like what that would feel like, and maybe that I don't, I just been having like, I like love my dad, but I'm also like, like, right. ah, like, you know, <laughs> when I like was doing all the press for the book, it was like, David Carr's daughter, daddy's girl. And I was like, yeah. I'm a filmmaker, like David Carr's daughter. Like, I don't know, but it's true because you have now technically surpassed him in some ways because you are a filmmaker, you're a director, you have eight or nine projects, features, a deal with HBO. He wrote about media. He interviewed filmmakers like you. You know, he talked about and championed films like yours at South by Southwest, et cetera. I mean, for so many creators, no doubt he would be so proud. But you're right. If a dad falls in the woods, does anyone hear? <laughs> I don't know. He said something once to me. We were together and he says, do you think that you'll be more successful than I am? And I said, I hope so. Good. <laughs> and he just kind of laughed. And there was part of him that like was like, mm. I mean, financially, yeah. I have made more. Like, I always want to call and tell him about like money. I'm like, yeah, your weird snowsuit, baby. Got you did it, doing it. You know, and like always wanted to like tease him that I make like, you know, four times as much as he did. Yeah. But that's like an insane thing to do. You can tell that I'm like weirdly competitive with my father just because he held, he has such a high bar for excellence and things like that. Um, and there's ways that he surpassed me that I'll never be able to surpass, right? But it's, uh, yeah, like I keep score. <laughs> so you move on and you get your first real big job and you don't know what to ask for, for a salary. Can you just give us that advice? Because it's just so helpful, you know, what he said. Um, it was basically, 
when in negotiations, you try not to be the first one to speak. But if you do have to speak, you say a number and then you stop talking. <laughs> you don't explain, you don't reason. You say, um, I would like to make $50,000 and or yeah. I'm thinking about 50000 as compensation. Mm -hmm. And then they say, well, da, 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 da. and it's like, I know, but I do, I have run the market and this is what somebody is making in my position. Is that something that we can get to? I think that I have always been incredibly intense about money, specifically because I don't have a safety net in the way mm -hmm. that some might traditionally have. And so I've always had to act sort of like more male about that. For example, anybody would be thrilled to get a book deal, right? Like, it's like, oh my God, someone's paying right. me for my brain to use my thingies to write. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just, I, I really like negotiating. I think it's my, uh, one of the pieces as a feminist to sort of be uh, forthright and transparent about money and then, yeah, try to like push it without like being crazy, right? And not over, overdoing it. But um, no, that was so awesome because you went from making 40K and walked out of that room with 85, which is mm. even more than he, he sort of put it to you, uh, well, how much do you want to make? And that was really the interesting question for me, because we don't think of it that way. You know, we're like, oh, well, what do we deserve? And what's my experience level? And ugh, we being yeah. women. Yeah, for sure. It's so aggravating. And I, you know, talk to women all over all the time. And it's, it's really that. And I would say that I wanted to make that amount of money, but I was fired within four months. Well, yeah, I want to talk about that too. But in my first couple of films, I didn't make money. You know, I mean, it was like, that was, a, so you can push during the job negotiations. But when I was making my own films, I was like, I'll do it. I'll do anything. You know, right. it, I knew that if you do these first couple of ones and you're not a weird about rights, about schedule and like, I'll do whatever it takes. I was like babysitting while I was making my first film, Thought Crimes. I think a lot of young filmmakers come to me and they're like, well, you know, production company, what should I ask for? I'm like, for your first one, just get the deal done, dude. You need to have director's credits. Yeah, well, so then you get that job with the fat salary, you think, and then you kind of blow it right away. Uh, <laughs> and you end up getting fired. You get drunk on a shoot. You break the camera. I also like farted while I was doing that. <laughs> you um, farted? Which is, I literally farted in front of a group of men while I was breaking the camera. And it's the mental Rolodex of shame. Just like, oh, girl. And then like, like tipping the camera over. And by the way, not talked about in the book. I like had a huge crush on my coworker. Uh, and we were like sleeping together at the time. But he was like not into it at all. And I like, mm -hmm. I basically called him like 40 times that night. And like, it got, it was so much worse. Like I, I basically, I had to focus it in the narrative of alcoholism, but like, yeah. I was just like, so desperate and weird. And like, it just was, I literally understand why they fired me. Good job. I mean, I would have fired me too. Get that fucking lady out of here. Um, like definitely the right decision on their part. And when I think back, I have like a lot of, you know, like, oh, you're a little idiot. But he's really <laughs> kind of graceful, your dad, with you around that firing too, because he had been there, I think, or one gets the sense and didn't want to add to your shame and actually helped you sort of 
prep for a firing with dignity. I'm going to be honest. I was acting crazy. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not a firing with dignity. There was nothing. There's no dignity inside this. I would have just thrown up my hands and left. I'm an incredibly combative person, and specifically at the time, I was unwilling to take responsibility. So. My dad, the reason, and I, that's one of my all-time favorite emails after I get fired, and he sends me this email, basically extends that solidarity to me that it's going to be okay, that I'm a good journalist, and I'm a good person, mm -hmm. and I'm going to land safely. Yeah. And I mean, he would have probably come incredibly close to tough love, but I was at that point like almost suicidal mm -hmm. about how right. badly I had fucked up. And so his ability to understand how dark it was for me, and this was I was okay, but I'd been fired from a job. Um, Vice had told me that I was going to fucking fail. I did, and I was humiliated. And so I needed somebody close to me to say, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And he prepared me to go into the firing meeting. As you said, as I said in the book, it was a very long meeting. I really tried to describe how they had wronged me. As a part of my recovery community work, I have acknowledged that like, that was crazy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think that later he expressed a lot of anger towards me for blowing it. But mm -hmm. in this really, really sensitive moment mm -hmm. uh, where I was having incredibly intrusive, dark thoughts, he knew to be soft. And I saved that. I printed out that email. I go back to it regularly, um, even today. I love to read the firing email. Could mm. you? Just so if anybody has been in that situation, they can hear it. So the title is Honey. And it's from car2n at gmail to me. And it's Wednesday, September 25th, 2013 at 7.44 p.m. Honey, so, so sorry for the kick in the teeth. Fucking hurts, I know. I am and have been so proud of you. You are smart, stand-up, tough, and true. This is ugly, but we have walked through plenty of ugly in our lives. And we are still nascent, still rising. I, too, have confronted people who disregarded me who underestimated, who wooed and then screwed me, and they were all wrong. There is a reason it had to be like this that won't be clear for a long time to come. Please know that you have my support economically and emotionally. We will row together across the lake of shit and land on firm welcome shores. I just know it. I so love you and so sad you are hurting. You're a good person, a hard worker, and a good journalist. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And by the way, I did not borrow money from my parents. Like, <laughs> I, did, I, I just, like, I, people are like, oh, you're fucking daddy, you know, getting, you know, bailing you out. Like, no, no, he would not. He's not a person that would loan me money. I think if it was, like, the last possible chance that I couldn't make rent or something like that. But I don't want to give the impression that, like, he was, like, paying my rent. Um, and that comes through clear. And that's one of the things, like, we really related to. Because you do expect, like... Oh, everybody in New York and that works for the New York Times is rich as hell. No, the people that were already born rich and blah, blah, blah. Uh, maybe Michael Wolf. But it feels so relatable in that way because there's not like this uh, bailout money for you. But it, it's sort of like what was really cute is that he put that in. Even he knew that like that was not something he wanted to ever do. <laughs> um, he he kicked me out after I came home from college and mm -hmm. I had two weeks to find my own apartment. Yeah. Um, he believed specifically very much into tough love. And as I look at that email and I read it out loud, I'm just so struck by one, how beautiful it is. Yeah. And yeah. that it is the most reassuring 
thing that anybody could have received at that moment. I literally was on the, the street with my box of shit. I had five blazers. I always keep an enormous amount of blazers. By the way, that was the last job I'd ever had. I would go on to work for myself for literally nine years straight. Wow. Um, and I just felt like such a loser. And I didn't think that uh, my alcoholism would ever get better. And for him to not blame me in that moment like he wanted to <laughs> was such profound parenting. It's such profound parenting, and it's so just right that he, he added, you're a good person. But notice how he ends on a good journalist. And a good journalist. But he also says you're a good person because it's like he knows when we hate ourselves, we just feel like we're not good people. I don't know. He really covered it. Well, around that time when you sort of feel like your own self-destructive tendency is kind of catching up with you and drinking a lot. He also has a relapse or he comes to Williamsburg where you live and you actually see him drunk for the first time or under the influence. I'd seen him drunk before, you know, on um, throughout periods. Uh, you know, he was sober from about zero to 14. Mm -hmm. um, so a large majority of my life, he was sober. And I always want to make that really clear when I'm talking about it. For the majority of his sobriety, he was like longstanding. But then I, he just like basically um, wanted to try drinking and he was a diabetic. And, you know, quickly, 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 he was addicted again and really utilizing alcohol in a heavy way. And so when I saw my father order a martini and he had already had a couple of what I'm assuming, you know, it was very hard to be tender with him in that moment. But again, I knew that this was not the time to to be hard with him. And I, you know, I basically hugged him close and I said, mm -hmm. you are, you know, he always said, you are mine and I am yours. And just making sure that I'm somebody that would never turn my back on him ever. Um, I had my own personal thoughts about it, but I was able to express that with other people versus him, which I now weirdly think shows a lot of tremendous emotional growth when I'm also battling alcoholism. And part of me was like, how did I not drink with him? That's so weird. Like I never, I don't think I never shared a drink with my dad. I mean, it wasn't even a question because it was like one of those really sad martini moments. But <laughs> um, yeah, that, I, I just can so feel being in that booth with him to this day. Mm, yeah. That scene is really, it stuck out to me, Erin, because in it, there's a phrase that I hear a lot when I'm thinking about my father as an alcoholic, not my father, the person, but the alcoholic, which is how much he hated himself. And that's a line that comes through in that moment when you're in the, the booth that kind of comes into focus with you. You see his ability to hate himself in that moment or the self-hatred. And how alarming that is, I think, as a daughter, an adult daughter, when you can see it in a parent, it can be really rattling, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that hatred came from in him? What was, what was the part of him that hated himself? Do you know what it stemmed from? It's the same with human beings. Where does all of our hatred come from? It comes from a place of insecurity, of fear. Uh, being left alone. Mm. And so I think that my father was very in touch with his emotions, wasn't afraid to cry, told many people of his friends, I love you. He was zapped into life in the best of ways and in the sort of the scary ways. And I think specifically as an alcoholic, there is that sort of 
you know, center of the universe as a piece of shit. And you become this, like, I think that there was some narcissistic tendencies um, going on. And I don't know. I think it's very normal at certain points in life to hate yourself, specifically when you're being self-destructive. And it's like, can you come back from that? Can you be a little bit softer with yourself? And can you put other people forward? Mm -hmm. Um, Like something that my dad always taught me is like when you're having a hard night or you're around people, you just do the dishes. Even if you don't feel like it, just put some music on, do the dishes, clean up for somebody. He's like, just try to do something for somebody else. And he really would do that, even though he was one of the craziest workaholics I'd ever met. Like students would like ask him for an interview or somebody would ask, you know, meet with him for coffee. Like, I don't know how he did that. Mm -hmm. He showed up for so many people. And so there are these like booth moments that for sure he had sort of like fucked up. But there are all these moments where he was able to be there for other people in a way very few people at the New York Times would have made time for, I believe. Yeah. Um, He genuinely believed that um, he was put in that position as a little bit of an intermediary. He wasn't Mm -hmm. time stopped. Mm -hmm, He knew what it was like to come from local journalism Mm -hmm. and that like, you know, what do I do? What is going to happen? I can't even tell you how many people he took time for. And it was incredible. Yeah. I hear so much, you know, you've been sober for how many years now? Six and a half. Congratulations. I mean, I hear so much strength and I hear recovery in you. And another thing that stuck out to me in the book is how beautifully you handle, you know, moments where he was really rough with you. I think, you know, told you that looking at you is like looking in a dirty mirror. Um, He said things to you that would sting. And he was also, you know, in his incredible kind of guidance and motivation put a lot of, I think, pressure on you, like to be in your sister, to be the best. To live up to the narrative of that fairy tale. I think there was tremendous pressure. And, um, you know, if I would write the book today, mm-hmm. I would have likely included a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time I was able to sort of cherry pick these moments that showed that we had like this uh, somewhat antagonizing relationship But that's what sort of made it more interesting. And I felt like you don't speak ill of the dead, right? Mm -hmm. And so I felt genuinely like I could put in these stories to sort of elucidate that. But I probably would have spent now like twice as long as the book as I as I did. And then I would I would probably structure it differently. Mm. But I think that his intensity with me was not to those single moments. I mean, he was such an intense guy. Like I just remember a couple of weeks before he died, somebody moved the phone and uh, I was often going to do that. And I was using the phone and he, he needs the phone to work. And he just started screaming, you know, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Like, what is wrong with you? You think the world revolves around you. This is how I fucking eat. What is wrong with you? Put the fucking phone back. And it was such like a insane response. And I, you know, I couldn't be three minutes late to meeting with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very intense that he should not be waiting for me in any way. Did he ever leave early or like leave? He would scream at me. Yeah, um, yeah. There was a lot of like sort of yelling in the house. Yeah. And like as big and buoyant and intense as his love was, there was this very intense expectations that I should meet. Uh, and if I fell 
behind on that, it was just like, you know, it was, it was about sort of expressing verbally. And I, now I, you know, I look at that, I look at how people parent and that's pretty unusual, um, not for then, but for now. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that I even have more stories of warmth and really interesting stuff that happened and, you know, beyond those sort of those, those moments, but I also have these, you know, these weird stories where he just, it almost like he couldn't, he just would like lose his mind and do that. But I mean, I don't know, that's human beings. Everyone freaks out that he loses their temper. Yeah. What What was your dad's childhood like growing well, up in yeah. Minnesota? What were his parents like? Uh, he was in an Irish Catholic family. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots go. and lots and lots of kids. He was the youngest of the boys and he was you know, I think just like into mischief and hijinks from very early on, uh, his family hit financial issues. Uh, when he was growing up, they were sort of middle class and well-to-do. And then there was a bankruptcy that was filed and suddenly they went to having to having very little. And the parents specifically really believed in Christian Catholic upbringing. And so all the money went to that. So when Mm -hmm. he went to college, his dad dropped him off with a $20 check that bounced. And so he was, uh, you know, really had to sort of figure out there was not the same level of mentoring in any way because, you know, his dad was busy and many, many kids. And um, (laughs) and so he did a lot of sort of figuring out for himself. But I I think he so quickly leaned into drugs Mm -hmm. uh, and alcohol that I think part of his 20s, while incredibly fun, it seems like from the book, was sort of lost to substances. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think he's always been, he always been a very escapist person from reading voraciously to figuring stuff out, then to drugs and then to writing and being a workaholic. He always had very much extremes, but he was incredibly close to his siblings, which I thought was always so cute. And they would do phone calls and he thought like family was one of the number one things that, you know, that mattered to him outside of being really good at what you do professionally. Mm-hmm. When I hear stories like that, the $20 check or I even think about, you know, Aaron, your dad, how your dad was raised. My dad born in the late 40s in Iowa with parents that didn't hug or say, I love you. Like the fact that he could show up at all, like as a, an I love you dad or a motivator, or I'm so proud of you is like, feels like miraculous because it certainly wasn't modeled for their generation at all. You guys had so many nicknames for each other. He called you and your sister Noodles and Beefaroni. <laughs> yeah, try not having a complex if your nickname is Beefaroni. Okay. Oh Thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> but we noticed when he was writing emails that had more of a like a serious professional advice, mm-hmm. then he would be David, right? What do you mean? So of insane. That? Insane. Okay. Insane. You're my dad. Like, what <laughs> is wrong with you? Amazing. It's interesting. Yeah. Listeners, like half, like there's a very formative shift. There's a palpable shift with yeah. Aaron's career. I'm going to talk about you like you're not here, Aaron. They're in the middle of all that you leave behind where suddenly one gets the sense that you're, you know, Aaron's dad is giving her advice that's like way more on like a peer or closer level. And those emails are signed David, not <laughs> dad it was xod he would also put like just d or was it dad was or it david, david? like uh, i mean i don't know i also think that he was always in a hurry and so it just was his signature david that's what i also wondered if it was like an automatic yeah. gmail signature but who knows 
I, I feel like I'm being too hard on him in this interview. Not I at all. Know. No. I literally like am like a person because of him. And so, Dad, if you're listening, uh, love you. And did not is. mind at you screaming at me over the horn. I did move it. Was my bad. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, unlike your dad, my dad had a really hard time with truth and telling the truth, especially to his daughters. Understandably, he had a ton of shame around his palpable, visible alcoholism. I think that's what it was. It was like David Carr's like focus on the truth and being honest when I think that's just so hard for most people to do, probably. It's a credit to you too, Erin, with your directing work. You did this fantastic documentary, I Love You Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter, which is now being adapted for a Hulu series called The Girl from Plainville, starring Elle Fanning, looked shockingly exactly like Michelle Carter. What draws you to these stories? Do you ever, I don't know, do you talk to your dad about them in your head? I mean, they're these creepy, real people. I think going through grief specifically, like, turns you into a level of darkness, no matter what your relationship was like with the person. And so I have always found that once I opened that darkness that was there before I made thought crimes and it was about sort of sexuality and fantasy, after I'd gone through the death of my father, I just wanted to go deeper into mm -hmm. sort of human psychology. And I just sort of stopped questioning if I like if I knew what a good story was earlier on when I would talk to my dad about stories, he really underlined the sort of the, the thought around virality. Are you going to make something that people are going to watch? And mm -hmm. through that, I have always, always considered the audience and, you know, making the Britney Spears film or making Mommy Dead and Dearest or I Love You Now Die or Kim Vall. Like it just was, what do I want to watch on a Tuesday? And how do I elevate the genre of true crime into talking about why do humans do these things? It's, it's really about mistakes and yeah. bad decisions and how somebody tips over the line from being uh, a person to being a bad person, you'll, you'll notice that that is the central thesis of my father's book. And so, you know, he basically communicated to me early on in my childhood that we are not equal to our best or worst actions. Mm. And so I would say that there's like, not just for this podcast, but there <laughs> is incredible tie-ins without giving him, you know, credit for my professional success, because in no way was that the sort of the case. Like he made me sort of think about story, but all these other ideas sort of had to happen after. But he had really good sort of framework advice that I try to impart on literally anybody that I meet. It's like, here, I want to give the advice away so you can have it, um, you know? And so that's sort of been one of my calling cards that I, I still love. If people don't know, Michelle Carter, that was the case. High school girl, high school boyfriend commits suicide and the whole thing is playing out over text messages and she is encouraging him to go through with it uh to kill himself even though he actually at one point tries to not and instead of being the helpful girlfriend she's kind of like the no go ahead and maybe for attention did your feelings about the case change after you made the film? I mean, I would be hard pressed to find a documentary filmmaker that doesn't feel like there's the story shifted during the making it. The whole yeah. great thing about being a documentary filmmaker is that 
the story literally plays out as you're making it. So I had all sorts of presuppositions uh, about what it would be about, how I would portray it. But I always remain incredibly open to sort of like, as I discover what is my sort of uh, opinion. And I never, I typically never tell people like what I thought about the case or what I think about her because it's a 192 minute work. Mm -hmm. um, and I just let the, the project sort of speak for me. Um, but I think that it's amazing to sort of like have people guess what I think about things. And while I still on um, mental health, all of my films surround uh, mental health and processing and grief and trauma and things like that, you know, I think that I try to sort of play games with the audience. Um, should we wrap up with just some like great endings from the list of David Carr? Your description of your dad's desk was very relatable. There's a description of like a frisbee with spare change and nails in it, like on his desk. It's like, that's Love such it. a dad image. It really yeah, like the he had frisbees everywhere with spare like, change. Spare change is very father and then nails. Oh my god! Yeah, I have this. Right here above my desk, it says, keep typing until it turns into writing, mm, which nice. is something he put on Reddit. And then up here is, no one is going to give a damn about your resume. They want to see what you have made with your little fingers. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that with the listeners and with us. Yes, and with Aaron. sharing the story. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> this was the easiest phone call I had to make today because I'm not begging somebody to do something. So <laughs> good. Thank you so much for your time, Erin. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, Tell Me About Your Father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think. <laughs>